The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to the special Between the Seasons edition of the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. Typically, by the middle of April, Anchorage residents are turning their thoughts to summer sports. But with the city setting a record this past week for the most snow on the ground in April, it seemed like a good time to do one more winter sports episode. So here we go. As you drive into Kincaid Park, there's a turnoff to the right just before you pass the bunker where NSAA stores the snow grooming equipment and the road drops down to the stadium area. If you blink, you'll miss the small blue sign that says World Cup Start Area. On maps of the park, that area down the short drive that goes to the right is also marked World Cup Start Area. The reason for the sign and the area is that back in March of 1983, Anchorage hosted a World Cup cross-country ski race. If this sounds odd, it is. Anchorage has only hosted this event once, and there have only been seven World Cup events in the United States ever. Of those seven events, two have happened in Alaska, one in Anchorage and one in Fairbanks. Back on March 6 of 1983, the Nordic Ski Club of Anchorage hosted the final race of the Citizens' Cup on the same 10K and 30K routes that would be used for the combined World Cup U.S. National Championships later in the month. For a $7 fee, you could race on the same course as the top skiers in the world. The winner of that race was UAA student Scott Oberbreckling, who took the overall and elite class crowns. One week later, the Subaru World Cup and Nationals began at Kincaid. The Anchorage Daily Times ran an article ahead of that event with the title, World Cup Comes to Anchorage. The article noted that the top skiers from Europe, Canada, and the U.S. were coming to town, some 100 skiers and coaches in total. It also noted that this was the second World Cup race in the U.S. ever, and that Alaska would be represented in the races by Auden Endestad of Fairbanks on the men's side, with Ruby Rabinowitz Endestad of Fairbanks and Lynn Spencer Galanis, who was born in Anchorage, on the women's team. The big name on the U.S. ski team was Bill Koch, who in the previous season was one of only two male World Cup skiers to score 100 points total for the season. Throughout the week, the snow was on the wane and shovelers were recruited to maintain the trails. In the first day of World Cup racing, Cook moved into the lead in the overall World Cup standings after skiing to a third-place finish. The winner, Swedish skier Gunde Sven, described his race as his most perfect ever. In second place was Tim Codwell of the U.S., who was fighting hard to gain World Cup funding for the following season. The Anchorage Daily News reported that for the U.S. team, the race was one of its most successful ever. In addition to Codwell in second, 
and Cook in third, Dan Simonow finished 14, and Jim Galanis tied for 18. That gave the U.S. 51 points for the event, matching a previous 51-point performance the year before. On the women's side, the race took place one day later, with a comeback win by Finland's Maria-Lisa Hamelinen, who was trailing the leader, Norway's Britt Peterson, by 7 seconds at the halfway point. She went on to win by over 14 seconds. The top U.S. finisher of the day was Alaskan Judy Rabinowitz-Endestad, who finished ninth. Not much remains of those World Cup races in Anchorage 40 years ago. There's that sign on Raspberry Road pointing drivers to the World Cup start area, but not much more. The World Cup returned to Alaska one more time in Fairbanks the next season, but hasn't been back since. This past season, the United States World Cup team boasted nine Alaskan or Alaskan-affiliated skiers. The names are familiar to skiing fans. Rosie Brennan, Scott Patterson, J.C. Schoonmaker, Haley Swarbel, Luke Jagger, Gus Schumacher, Hunter Wonders, Michael Earnhardt, and Zayden McMullen. The team also included Jason Cork from North Pole and Chris Grover from Anchorage, who are part of the World Cup coaching staff. Many of those skiers and coaches are products of the Anchorage Nordic Ski Community. While the World Cup has not returned to Anchorage or Alaska, the city and the state have become a huge part of the highest levels of cross-country ski racing. Because of the success of local skiers like those on the current U.S. team and others over the years such as Keegan Randall, Holly Brooks, and Nina Kempel, we've all heard the stories of Anchorage kids who've grown up skiing in the city and ended up racing at the highest levels of the sport. But what about those who have taken a different route into the upper levels of skiing, like coaching? On this episode, we're talking to Naomi Kiekenfeld, who took an unlikely route into skiing that led her from the trailer park to the World Cup. Full disclosure, Naomi's my daughter, and we sat down at the dining room table to talk. Here's our conversation. But I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places. Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have you So my name is Naomi Kiekenfeld. I'm Joel's oldest daughter. Um, and a professional cross-country ski coach. Um, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, didn't ski till I was in middle school, and then from there found a love for it and went on to ski collegiately um, and retired and then became a coach back home, ski- coaching for my old high school. Um, and it's just kind of gone on from there. So you kind of mentioned briefly there, but how did you get started skiing? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so I think it started when I was quite young, um, when I, we had this pair of, I think it was a pair of Elon three pin kid skis that were maroon and a pair of gray low top, you know, three pin boots. And instead of snowshoeing to go get our Christmas tree, I would grab skis. And it was maybe once or twice a year I would go ski. And then from there we had a like segment in our gym class in sixth grade that was skiing. And we got some other pair of skis that had S&S bindings and then boots that were N&N, which we had no idea at the time, aren't supposed to work together. And for whatever reason, we had a magic pair that worked together. And I would ski around this field at the school 
and loved it. And so when I went on to middle school, Anchorage is one of the places in the country that actually has skiing within our school district and joined the ski team. And I skied on random mismatched gear, had no idea what we were doing or what gear is supposed to fit like. So I had this pair of gigantic Peltonen skis that were way too big, but I still loved it. It didn't matter. Um, and from there, um, after my eighth grade year, I did like a month long session with Alaska Nordic racing where I learned how to roller ski, um, and was taught that I was skate skiing wrong, which was a great time and had to relearn, but then went into my freshman year with a little bit more tools in my box, got given some skis that were of a little bit higher, um, race level type ski, um, and fit correctly and went on to, um, varsity letter my freshman year, um, and then skied varsity all three, all four years of high school, went and skied state for three of those years, um, then went on to go ski collegiately for Michigan Technological University, had what I call a year of unfortunate circumstances and decided to retire, um, from, from racing, came back home on what I thought was a gap year, um, and my old high school coach was like, hey, you want to coach? And I was like, sure. I was 19 and didn't know what I was doing, but have found a love for it. And I'm still coaching at South seven years or six years later um, and have now coached with a bunch of different programs. So so you weren't one of those kids that grew up doing like junior Nordic, kind of started a little bit later um, in junior high. When did you kind of figure out like you were fairly good at this? Like <laughs> I, I know you said you, you remember like getting Christmas trees and all that kind of stuff, but like when did you figure out like oh I'm I'm actually okay I I like doing this and I'm okay at it. I think the like for it came in middle school. Um, it was a camaraderie. You got to go outside. It was I don't know. There was just something about it. It was a lot like running, which is a very similar vibe in in middle school sports, um, it's a little less competitive and just a little bit more like, let's go have fun running around in the woods and skiing around in the woods. Um, but I think when I realized I was good at it, there was a moment, it was the second race of the year and my, uh, the years I was in high school, Anchorage had some really bad snow years. And that first year, the first race, it was really cold and it was in Girdwood because it was the only place that had snow. And, I made the rookie mistake of thinking that my base layers went outside of my suit. And so I had to take off my base layers over top of my boots, which is basically impossible and miss my start by like 80 seconds. And so the next race, which was on a frozen lake where we skied basically on just frost, um, I was placed in a different letter group and in a slower letter group because my time looked really bad from the first race. And I won that race by like the entire width of the lake. And I think that that's when I was like, oh, okay, I'm actually pretty good at this. And then was placed on in the the top group in the A group for the next race since there was some people gone racing at US Nationals. And so there was less people on the team for that race and raced in that top group and did not super bad. And so I was like, huh, interesting. And that's, I think when it clicked that like, okay, I'm actually like, have, have some skill in this, maybe I should consider this more seriously as an actual sport instead of just me like having fun on on skis so it's interesting i have a different story that (laughs) popped into mind which is like um you were just starting to race in junior high and there was a race i remember at kincaid a a classic style race where you guys disappeared off into the woods and then came (laughs) into the stadium and i was like oh, holy cow, Naomi's in fourth, <laughs> like skiing with all these kids. And there was like a tight group at the front. And I was like, oh, wow, she's actually okay at this. So like, it's kind of funny that you have a different sense of when you felt like that. But as your parent, yeah. like I was like, oh, 
Oh, she might actually be okay. <laughs> um, so that was kind of your racing career growing up, junior high, high school, a yep. little bit of college. And then you, when did you decide that you were, um, you wanted to continue on with the sport? Racing maybe wasn't the route that you'd want to go, but maybe coaching was an option. When did that happen for you? I don't know if there was a moment. It actually might have been post me starting to coach. Um, the coaching kind of just happened. I don't think it was really intentional. I was in what I, again, what I thought was a gap year. Um, and I just kind of wanted to do something and that seemed like an easy way to do it. Um, but I think part of why I continue to do it past that is I was given a lot of support from people, um, in my community to do what I did. Um, and that was through donations and people choosing to help support me or, you know, giving me skis or even buying me skis to help um, get me to where I was going. Um, skiing's really expensive, and with the me being in high school during those years and my mom battling breast cancer during the same years that I was racing, having that support from that group of people and having the opportunity to be on scholarship for club racing and stuff like that, um, the want to give back to that community, since it is pretty expensive was part of the reason why I continued to coach after, um, starting to coach already. So, so, um, I know you got hired to coach at South when you were like 19 years mm -hmm. old as an assistant coach for South high school. So what was that like coming back to the school where you raced only a year or two later and, and coaching, I mean, athletes that you had raced with when they were freshmen or sophomore, like what was it like to coach folks that were in a similar age group to you? It, it was difficult. <laughs> um, a little bit of backstory is to be a paid coach for ASD, you have to be one full year out of high school. So I was I qualified for that. So it was an actually paid position. And the I remember talking with the head coach and he was like, you need to make sure that you set really clear boundaries because I was actually friends with some of the people on the team. They were sophomores when I was seniors or when I was a senior. And so, you know, I was had to have that discussion with them. That's like, hey, when I'm like, giving instruction, I need you guys to really respect that and do it instead of being argumentative or disrupting. And they were really good about it, um, which was really helpful. But the classes underneath them, it was a little bit more difficult because they just see you so much as the same and you're in that same age category. And so it's a little bit hard to have some authority. Um, but looking back on it, I think I don't necessarily recommend everyone start coaching that young because it is hard. Um, but it's, given me tools to be a little bit more authoritative while also still kind of relating to them and knowing how to have fun at that age group and giving them a little bit more freedom to just be high schoolers. Um, and I think that shows, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm, it's a proud coach moment. Um, South didn't have like the greatest years or the greatest racing this year, but, um, Nordic X, which is a downhill jump, style Nordic race. So you're going down at downhill, like Alpine area on Nordic skis and they put jumps in and it's a full on race that this year South had a girl who is now over 18. So races in the women's classification was third. The people in front of her were Haley Swerble, who just retired from racing for the U S ski team. And then Keegan Randall and then our the junior boys division, Owen Young, who was one of our seniors this year, won the race. Um, and then another one of our girls 
podiumed in the junior race as well. So to have that many South kids like on the podium for a race that's about jumping on skis is pretty funny to me and a little bit of like, wow, okay, we're actually like, they're having fun and they're good racers, but they also are like maintaining skills to have fun on skis as well. And keeping a little bit of that like childishness to skiing kind of with them as they graduate into, into racing as adults. So you started coaching for South and now six years later and listeners probably picked up, you're still coaching um, for South and moved into the head coach um, position there. Where all are you coaching nowadays? Like I know there's a number of different ski coaches. This is not abnormal, but what are the different places where you're coaching skiing at the moment? So on my resume, my affiliations are officially Alaska Pacific University's Nordic Ski Center, primarily as a juniors coach, meaning the high school age group, um, and then South High as the head coach. Um, but if you look at my like CV as my record of like everything that I coach, um, I coach regularly with Team Alaska. Um, I was named to the Arctic Winter Games coaching staff um, in 2020, which unfortunately was canceled due to COVID. Um, And I've coached junior nationals now three times. Um, And then this past year, I got a um, fellowship called the Trail to Gold Fellowship sponsored by the National Nordic Foundation, the U.S. Ski Team, the Women's Association, Coaching Association, and um, the Trail to Gold book, which is the story of all of the women who led to the gold medal by Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall at the Olympics. Um, and that fellowship took me on a two-week trip onto the World Cup, um, coaching in Ruka, Finland, and Lillehammer, Norway. So I have also coached for the U.S. ski team. Um, I, at one point in time, coached Junior Nordic um, with the Hawks. Um, and then those jobs kind of take me all over the place, Um coaching at U.S. Nationals and Junior Nationals and going on to like Whistler for a U18 camp for the U.S. ski team. So a little bit of a mixed bag and just kind of which hat you're wearing for that particular race. So part of your story, too, I think that listeners might find interesting is that you grew up in a trailer park on the south side of of Anchorage. And I can think of one other Nordic skier that I'm aware of um, from our neighborhood. So it's an interesting route that you've started kind of in a neighborhood that's not known for skiing. This neighborhood produces a lot more soccer players than skiers. Um, But this idea of moving from the trailer park all the way to the World Cup. So you mentioned that you coached this year um, with the Trail of Gold with the World Cup. How did that come about? How did you end up on the World Cup? I mean, people might be very familiar with, we've had lots of racers from Anchorage and from Alaska who have grown up here, skied here, learned here, and then ended up on the World Cup Tour, and we know those stories. Um, But what is it like for a coach then to end up on the the World Cup Tour? Yeah, it. I think it's a similar trajectory, but it's a lot of hard work, and it's a lot of um, being willing to step into situations where you're very uncomfortable and you have people who are like very well known for coaching. Um, I think it's very interesting to think about the fact that AI started racing late, but that I was also from a lower income part of Anchorage with skiing being a little bit more of a expensive and kind of higher income, um, sport. It's also an extremely white sport. It's it, there is not a lot of diversity within it. Um, and being white myself, I, I feel guilty almost sometimes about that. But um, it's interesting that the kind of path from the trailer park to the World Cup is very similar to how 
other athletes do it. Um, it's just you have to put it in the terms of like it being a career. And it's the same thing of like, well, how do football coaches get to the Super Bowl? It's the same pathway you you coach, you know, the little guys you coach, you know, junior Nordic, which are elementary schoolers. And then you have that on your resume and you're able to go and coach like high school is an intro level um, coaching. And then from there, like my high school head coach who I ended up working for was one of the junior coaches at APU. And like, then we have a discussion about moving into club. And because I coach for APU, which is one of the senior racing clubs in the nation, you have the opportunities to go coach bigger races and to tech at bigger races. Um, ski teching, meaning the waxing side of it, working with the skis themselves and going to us nationals. And like, once you start building that resume up and once you have that kind of repertoire, then you start getting the ability to go and coach bigger and bigger things. Um, and kind of not having the fear of applying for those things. Cause I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome too, that happens where it's like, well, there's always people that are better than you out there who are going to get the position. And you don't know that until you apply. So taking that moment to like, just apply just because, um, and you might actually end up receiving it, um, is I think how you end up working your way up that, that ladder and not being afraid to, to mess up or to make a mistake, um, and just learn as you go, um, and not hold yourself back by the anxiety or the fear of going to the next big race. Cause it is, it's a little bit scary to walk into an arena with the, all of the top skiers in the world who were just at the Olympics and to walk into that arena and go, okay, I'm like, I'm just a girl from Anchorage, Alaska, who's now here. Interesting. And, you know, I fell, I, we were testing one day in Lillehammer and I, I crashed pretty hard, like full on face planted right in front of one of the best sprinters in the world. And it was that moment of like, we all fall <laughs> even on the world stage. So I, it's, yeah, I don't, I think it's the same as racing and getting up into those levels is you have to kind of take the leap into that next, next race category you have to jump into racing at higher levels you have to make that conscious decision to go and coach at higher levels so you can continue to to kind of go up in that chain so you just mentioned a little bit about what it was like to be um, with the world cup team in finland and in norway and i remember asking you when you were over there and you said like it's the same as every race day (laughs) it's just that the racers are the best in the world but is there anything else you would say about that experience of spending a couple of cycles a couple of races um, on the World Cup as an intern coach. What would you say about that experience? I think people think of higher level racing as this like ultra competitive environment and atmosphere. And I feel like it's almost junior racing is more, more competitive of an atmosphere and that there's more like anxiety in the air. You go to junior nationals and all the kids are like really anxious and worked up and you go to World Cup and the athletes are they're so practiced and so experienced in it that they're really chill. Um, and they're just, you know, they're baking cookies and singing birthday songs and, you know, dancing and doing TikToks and who knows what else they're doing in the, when they're not skiing. But then they get on snow and they're still having full conversations or going out for skis and they're they're serious about it. But they're also like chatting with all the different athletes from the different nations. And like it's this really relaxed environment on the athlete side, which is really cool to see that like the top athletes in the world are so relaxed and so comfortable with it that they don't have to, there's not you, there's not that stress. And yeah, there's moments where you can feel it right. Right. And right before the race, when you're standing in the start pen, that's when you kind of can feel the, like that they're really serious and they've got their game face on. Um, but then on the coaching side, 
I think people think it's the same way. Um, on the World Cup, they have each of the teams, or most of the teams, have really big trucks. They're, they look like semi-trucks, um, and they expand out into basically triple the size that they are when they're packed down. All the door, the walls come out and slide out, and there's the wax trucks, and there's all these wax benches in them. And the basically, techs live in there, and you think when you walk in, it's going to be this like almost hostile or like rough environment where it's just like people really intense about wax and are huge nerds about it. And, you know, it's this, it, first of all, it's really male dominated. So to walk in as a woman is a little bit intimidating on its own. Cause you're like, I'm literally the only woman standing in this truck. Um, but they are some of the nicest people I've ever met <laughs> and are super inviting and want you to learn and are really intentional about giving you the opportunities to do things in the truck on with skis that you would not normally get to do. Um, racing or being present domestically so using the like ski flexor which just isn't something that we have readily available unless your team has it to actually flex skis and knowing how how they wax for what type of like camber of ski which is just getting into the weeds but um that type of thing or like learning how to wax in a different method um than what you're used to is really cool and they're really they want you to learn, so they put you on the bench and they let you wax skis. So um, there's that, and they let you, they trust you because you got there. You clearly have the skills to know how to wax skis if you're present there. So they give you the tools, and they don't, they just trust that you're going to make skis that the athletes can ski on um, for training days. And then the other aspect is testing skis and knowing how to feel skis and their speed. And you go out on the test tracks, that's a super congested area of mostly, again, men, um, and something that's really cool this year that the Federation of International Skiing, FIS, did is they made, essentially, teams get bibs um, for different parts of the day, and there's course bibs, which essentially allows you to move on course on skis and in the testing zones. And typically, the large teams, so Norway, Finland, Sweden, the U.S., get six of those bibs. This year, they made two extra bibs that teams can get that are women's only bibs. So the six main bibs were all yellow, and then there was two turquoise bibs that only women can wear. And that's any woman on staff. It could be a chef or a tech or a coach or a PT or any anyone that is officially named your staff can wear that teal bib. And so to go out on testing tracks, you're in a sea of yellow bibs and the... Um, industry guys but those were also different colors and you're in this just sea of dudes and there's like four women there's like four teal bibs it was like Vala who's one of the techs for Norway one of the Swedish techs one of the Canadian techs and me and you're like okay this is an interesting atmosphere but it's also you walk into that truck and it, it, it doesn't matter it's cool but it doesn't matter you're kind of one of the same in the in the truck so it's a very inviting very supported environment to be in um, on that level. So you've been talking about the fact that um, women in coaching and especially in the tech end of it. So folks may not be aware that cross country ski coaching, I think if you don't know the sport, you imagine that that's the people that you see on the sidelines yelling at their athletes, um, giving them time updates, those type of things. And that's one aspect of coaching. And then mm -hmm. the other aspect is this whole area of prepping skis and the equipment and all of that stuff. Um, but you were highlighting there 
that it's been a very male dominated world Mm -hmm. um, of coaching, especially upper level skiing and that techs especially have been super male dominated. So maybe talk a little bit about why did the Nordic foundation um, and U S skiing create this program um, that you are a part of that are bringing different female coaches along for two weeks at a time um, as interns. Why was that created in the first place? Yeah. So I'm going to back up a little bit and just go over kind of the difference between coach and tech again, because I think it's important. Coaches are typically, again, those that you see on the sidelines, they're doing a lot of the athlete care. They're in the start finish zones, but they also do like most of the logistics. So booking hotels and the, that type of thing, coordinating, you know, food and, and all of that, um, and writing training plans. And if someone's sick, they're kind of the ones working with the team doctor on how to like get those athletes back to healthy. And then you have the ski techs or the service staff and the service staff, they're almost their entire job is just managing the athlete skis. Typically one tech ski tech is named two athletes. They get one woman and one, one, um, man as a, athlete um, and their entire job is to manage their fleet and to wax their skis and to know how those athletes skis for what type of like wax they need Um, and those fleets can be anywhere between you know 30 pairs of skis for maybe one of the younger athletes to like 60 or 70 pairs of skis for someone like Jesse Diggins Um, and they're also working really closely with the industry staff so industry meaning like Fisher skis will send two guys to the world cup to be there as the reps um, and work with the techs of the athletes who are on Fisher skis Um, and sometimes they get like extra skis depending on who you are for certain race conditions that Fisher has that maybe the athlete doesn't have for that particular race Um, and that's kind of their whole job so there's two entirely different staffs for different jobs within um working with the athletes. Um, but yeah, the, what, what does, why did they come up with the trail to gold fellowship? So as mentioned multiple times, coaching and teching is very male dominated. Um, and to be like, if you're at really any race, you, you start to realize it really quick that women kind of have this view sometimes that they're the athlete care coaches. They're, they're the ones that go into the start finish area and they're the more like kind or motherly or that type of thing. And the, the men are supposed to be doing the, the technical work. Um, and that's kind of been the rhetoric for a long time. And there have been some women who have really pushed that boundary and have started to get more experience with waxing and starting to, to kind of open those doors um, but I think the the essence of why the fellowship was created is it's really hard to hire women who should be in those positions if they don't ever have the same experience as men, because you're always going to choose the people with more experience to go into higher level positions. So if there's no way for women to go to those, those experiences, because there are will always be men who have gotten them before it, then how do we get women those experiences in the first place. And so coming up with a fellowship that allows women to actually get to the World Cup then gives the opportunity that when a full-time position comes available, then women can apply and actually have the experience to be able to go and actually work full-time for that for that staff. Um, and that's true domestically as well. Um, there's, you know, it's kind of everywhere and you kind of, the more and more you're inside the community, you realize it more and more that the men are kind of always selected over women. And there's a lot of times where you feel like you're being pitted against your other female coaches 
and it's like you're the token woman that they will bring along and it's rare that they bring both or one of you stays home and one of you goes and you kind of flip-flop to get you each experience but like it's weird if both of you are selected to go on a trip or or three or whatever um so that's an interesting aspect as well um and it depends on what circle you're in as well because the collegiate circuit right now has quite a few women head coaches which is amazing um but if you look at some of the clubs that's a difference um or high schools there's a difference so it's a little bit interesting that way but the idea is to get people more experience to be able to take back home or to use in the future to give them more experience and more tools to be able to go and coach at higher levels so we've been talking the last few minutes about the world cup i want to bring it back to just anchorage so you co- the main coaching that you do is with juniors, both mm-hmm. at high school level racing and then also at club racing. I'm not sure listeners know what all coaches do on a race day. <laughs> so um, could you fill in to listeners, what does a coach for junior level skiing, what does a race day look like for you in, in the case of like South, you're the head coach. What does that look like for a race day? Well, race day starts the day before. because <laughs> So... It, it involves a lot, but the day before you, for high school at least, we typically just choose a wax. And I'm going to, this is hard to explain without being really particular about the type of wax, but you choose a paraffin or your base wax and you apply that and you scrape that. And then you, if it's classic racing, you have grippy wax that goes on the ski as well. And you have to put something called a binder, which is essentially, it helps the kicking layers that the actual kick wax stick better to the ski so the snow doesn't just strip it off and that's something that you do with heat so you have to use an iron and you we you know take all of the skis that are those skis and you take them we take them home so the athletes typically help scrape the paraffin we then collect all their skis I like to bring them home because I just prefer to wax in my pajamas and wax at home and you know put all that binder on and then you got to load all of those skis back into the car. And how along. many skis are we talking about? How many athletes are you prepping? Um, South this year had like 60 athletes. Um, so anywhere between 30, if we wanted to take a little bit less skis night before to all 60 pairs. Um, and there are some races where you're doing both skate and classic, either in one race called the scaffold or in back to back days. So regions is Friday, Saturday races. So you have two days of waxing back to back and you prep, all of those skis for their base level prep the on Thursday, the, the day before the first race. So that's 120 pairs of skis, plus all of the test skis, um, which I'll get to in a second. So you load all of that stuff, all of the equipment that you need, all of the wax and tools and tables and all that stuff into a car, and you go to sleep, and it's probably, I don't know, 1130 at this point maybe, um, and you wake up at anywhere between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., depending on the type of race. Um, Race starts are most traditionally at 11 a.m., and you drive yourself to wherever the venue is. Um, Kincaid's a really just good picture for this, but um, you drive to Kincaid, and you either set up outside or inside the wax bunker, which is just a concrete building that has a lot of open floor space, and you... unload all of that stuff, all the wax boxes, all the tools, all the tables, all the skis, and you prep test skis. And test skis are a fleet of identical skis, 
um, anywhere between two pairs and like 12 pairs of skis. So a total of 24 skis. Um, and you wax each individual ski with a different wax. And you're essentially trying to find what is the best option for that day. Um, both what is the fastest and then for kick wax, what's kicking the best. Um, and you go and ski with multiple coaches and you trade those all between each other tournament style. So you take, you know, skis one and two and you figure out which is the fastest one and you move that one on. Um, and then you have to wax and testing can take, depending on how many options you have, 30 minutes to an hour and a half. And you have to then schedule on how long it takes you to wax per ski to get them ready for start. Um, roughly an hour and a half to two hours before start is when athletes show up. And so you also have to pass out bibs and make sure that athletes have their uniforms. And if a kid forgot their boots, then you're trying to figure out how to get them a pair of boots for them to race in. And, um, you know, roughly 15, 20 minutes to start is when athletes are going to need skis. So then you are handing them their skis and giving them instructions for classic races an hour before their start, they're taking their skis and testing the wax to make sure that they like what it feels like the, the kickiness to it. And sometimes they need a touch up. So then you're also doing touch ups while also trying to wax just for the kids to go test. Um, and then races start and you typically have coaches in the actual start pen man managing, getting them out to their starts on the correct time. Um, skiing has two different types of starts. It has individual starts, which essentially one skier goes every set amount of seconds. So every 30 seconds, one skier goes and then mass starts, which is just everyone starts at one time. Um, and so you have someone kind of getting, making sure that all the athletes are showing up on time. And then usually someone in the finish as well, making sure that any athletes that are finishing are okay and don't need any medical attention or something like that. Skiing happens when it's cold. So a lot of times you have kids finishing and they're, they're really cold and you got to get them a blanket and some warm fluids and stuff like that. And then you got to take it all down and you have to clean all the skis. So on multi-day races, you're pretty much working from the moment that you wake up to the moment that you go to sleep. Um, and then you repeat the next day. And I know when you were racing, the one of the, the athlete side coaches, I, I swore her job was to tell people to get their clothes off and get to the starting line and then to get their jacket back on as soon as they finish. Like that was their main job. It felt like that was the big part of high school coaching. But as you, as you've illustrated like it's an all-day process yeah. usually for multiple days so I guess the question I have for you then is what keeps you coming back what motivates you to coach um, to come back to work those long days to do all of that what is it that you love about it there is so many answers to this question um, you know there are days where it's really hard where you're just frustrated at everyone and everything and it's nothing seems to be going the right way and the athletes are being nuisance and it's just a mess. And then there are days where you finish the race and or an athlete finishes the race, right? And you're at the finish and it's a freshman who just managed to play second overall for state out of nowhere and he's just giddy as all get out for like so excited and you ask him well what like what happened out there like what like it, what just happened you're you came out of nowhere he's like I don't know I just felt good and then I just kept skiing and all you gotta do is just keep skiing and I'm almost like wise words <laughs> and like just the moment of like the recognition that someone is so stoked about this kind of out of nowhere performance that and he the answer is just 
I just kept skiing because I like skiing. And it, there was no other explanation. But then you also have someone finishing who just came back from racing in Finland for the U18 Nations Cup trip the day before state and finishes the, the, the last day and gives you a big hug and is teary-eyed. And you can tell he's it's emotional because I've coached him all four years. And he's just like, I'm going to miss this. Like, this was awesome. Thank you for coaching. And I think it's those moments where a kid who's given you so much trouble over four years and is a little bit of a, you know, trying to be a cool kid. And then you have that moment where you like, you actually did matter and you as a coach made an impact in their life. And they, they thank you for that. I think that's what really like it gets you coming back because you just want to give back to those kids and those kids do grow. And you see that over four years, um, I think is the easiest way to answer (laughs) that question. So one question I often ask is like, what did I miss? Or is there something about cross country skiing or cross country ski coaching that you would like people to know? Um, everyone can do it. If you know how to ski, you can coach. Um, or if you just like watching a really odd sport, there's always some way to be involved in the community. It, it literally takes a village. Um, the coaching staff is one thing and the athletes, but there's also an entire group of people dedicated to making the races run um, and make them possible. Um, the whole volunteer staff is incredible, and there's always an entry into that. The, there's always something to do. Um, but coaching, I think, is... It's one of those things that a lot of coaches do it because they love it, and it's definitely a career of passion and not because you're making money. Um, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you're a professional cross-country ski coach who has done all these things. Like You must be making quite a bit to be able to do it. And I'm like, nah, I don't coach football. Um, I coach cross-country ski. (laughs) And I think that that's something that is important to remember is like, a lot of times, especially with high school sports, the coaches are not making a lot of money and they do it because they're there and just treat the coaches with respect because they just genuinely love your kids and want them to do their best and to love the sport. Um, and it's not always about running, winning the title or winning the race. It's about finding the love for sport. And I think that that lesson is way more valuable than taking home uh, some hardware. So. Well, the last question that I ask every guest, or most of the time, sometimes I forget, um, is about a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do to keep yourself centered in the middle of your busy life. What is it that you do that kind of feeds your soul or your spirit? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think one of the, I think skiing is a lot of it. I mean, it's not the only job that I do. I'm also the general manager of a gear store and I doodle around with being a professional photographer. And I think skiing is part of that self-care. It's a, you go out and you get a workout for your job. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you get to like be outside and you get your workout in at the same time that you're working. And I'm like, well, yeah, sometimes also, sometimes it's standing on snow on skis freezing because you're doing, you're just standing in one spot. But it's, I feel like it's a lot of self-care in that way. Um, but it's also, there's just such a big community around it um, that supports you and that I think has a huge benefit into coming back because it is it's an exhausting job and so to have that community that 
is there and is doing it alongside of you and is supportive when you need to step away for a moment um, and just take some time for yourself. Um, I think one of the things that for self-care, and this sounds so simple, but is to just get a full eight hours of sleep most days and to force yourself that like, even though you have a million things going on and you have like 10 million projects that you need to complete that at whatever time you go to bed so that you get a full eight hours because otherwise you just are chronically sleep deprived and you're exhausted and you're grouchy. And I think that that has a big impact um, is to get that full amount of sleep no matter what is happening and no matter how many things you should be doing um, so that you're not super irritable and you can actually enjoy coaching and all of the the nuances that come along with it i think that communal aspect is so important of like we all need people around us and like you said it takes a whole village to make racing work and skiing work in anchorage and we talked a little bit on our previous episode about nsaa when we talked to alice snap about that community and that that's a community that's doing stuff out of passion as well. So thanks so much for sitting down at our dining room table (laughs) and talking to your dad about skiing and coaching. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. thanks to Naomi for joining me and sharing her story. Remember, it takes a community to make skiing happen in Anchorage. Well, in fact, it takes a community to make a community happen in Anchorage. So get involved wherever you can. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchorage City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lutner. Monica Lutner.